Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. I am Ed Cotton. I am the host of Inspiring Futures a podcast about the why, what, and how of the future. Um, I'm delighted that my guest today is Michael Faniel. Um, Michael and I have known each other, I can't even, maybe 15 years? What would you say? Yeah, right? I think so. I think something like that, which is a a long time in anyone's book. Um, We were at one point uh, fellow disciples of the the planning world, Um, and... Have sort of Michael has sort of gone on to do other things, and we're going to talk today about sort of what Michael's up to now and what he's about to do uh, and release into the world. Um, but before we do that, Michael, if you could give everyone a little sort of sixty seconds accelerated life history from a profession perspective, professional perspective, uh, that would be Thank awesome. And thanks, thanks for having me. I am. Um... Well, it began on Long Island. I grew up in a big, boisterous Italian family. I was the first person in my family to graduate college, and I pursued my passion to work in politics. I worked on a few campaigns. I worked on Capitol Hill, and I quickly realized it was such a sordid and ugly environment. Uh, I wanted to figure out how to do mass communications in a way that felt more generous, more kind, more noble. And so I hightailed it to to New York and to Madison Avenue. And uh, I was lucky enough to spend most of my career working at uh, some amazing ad agencies with some really great people, small places, big places, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, J. Walter Thompson, Havas, Fallon. And uh, I got to work with some great people on some, some, some great campaigns to help build some really, really nice brands. But uh, a handful of years ago, I got a, a call to join General Mills as their chief creative officer. It was a, a, a new role that they were creating because they wanted to figure out how to use creativity and inspiration to make their big food company a better food company. And uh, I did that for a few years until sort of storm clouds gathered and, uh, and I, I think their vision changed. Uh, uh, so, so I left and I've spent the last two years doing, doing something I've dreamed of doing most of my life, which is, which is writing a book. And uh, it's a book about inspiration. It's actually a book um, about becoming inspiring. You know, there are so many books out there to inspire you. This, as far as I can tell, is, 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 is maybe the only one that, that, that teaches you how to be inspiring, which I think you've got to be if you want to accomplish anything. That's so, great. That's great. Can I rewind just a little bit and just ask to probe some questions here? Um, do, you, do you feel that... Your, you know, your aspirations were political at the beginning. Do you feel that, what do you feel you took from those aspirations and that learning into the world of advertising? Yeah, uh, quite a few things. I mean, one of the things I recommend to most people who want to work in marketing is that they should spend a little bit of time working on political campaigns because there is no hiding the reality that you've got to be effective. On a certain date, a certain number of voters, consumers, need to choose your thing over the other thing. And that that stark sense of accountability really drives a lot of decisions uh, that, that, that might otherwise sort of get lost in a swirl of perceptions and impressions if you're, uh, if you're coming from a more traditional brand perspective. So I, I, I think the, uh, yeah, the brutal, raw accountability of a political campaign is great, great learning. Yeah. I, I also think that when, when you look at the history of politics, especially in the last 40 or 50 years, you, 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 you see, I don't know if it's a trend or if it's just a phenomenon, that uh, the candidates who are able to, to inspire 
the candidates who are able to rouse emotions and to arouse passions tend to be the ones who win, right? Reagan beats Carter, uh, Clinton beats Bush, uh, even George W. Bush beats, beats, beats Al Gore, Obama beats Romney. Those people who have a way of framing things in, in sort of epic and emotional terms succeed. They move, they mobilize people. And I think there are a whole lot of lessons in that for uh, the world of marketing and advertising. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So then, then, then in, the, in the recent history, you made the leap client side, which is one which is interesting. You know, you, you went to work for a big CPG brand, uh, company, sorry, and with a lot of, a lot of brands. Um, was that just the opportunity was too great to, to, to turn down? Well, well, ultimately, yeah, I, I resisted the invitation to meet with them at first. I thought culturally uh, General Mills and in particular was, uh, was not going to be a good fit for me coming out of more creative environments. They felt a little, little mom jeans, a little pleated khakis. I thought, I thought it would be a disaster. But I met Mark Addix, who was the, the outgoing chief marketing officer, and he is one of the most smart, ambitious, kind, genuine human beings you can meet. And uh, I was instantly enchanted by him. But, mm. but, but, but I, I said, Mark, you're not like anybody else there. And he said, well, come back and meet one more person. So I went back and I met a woman named Ann Simons, who eventually was my boss. And she is fiercely intelligent, really nurturing, and, and, and again, really, really genuine and honest. And I said, oh, Ann, you're amazing, but you're probably not like anybody else there. And she said, well, come back and meet one more person. And, and this went on for, for, for a few weeks. And uh, as, as it happened, as I met person after person, I was so intrigued that they had a kind of intelligence I wasn't used to encountering at ad agencies. It was that uh, MBA-brained, steely-minded, analytical intelligence. And I, I got excited about learning from, learning from those people, spending time with that tribe. But I still wasn't sure about General Mills until I, I, I met the CEO. And he explained to me uh, their ambition to be a better food company, to take artificial ingredients out of cereal and sugar out of yogurt and to become the, the, the biggest natural and organic food company in America. And I, I genuinely got turned on, not, not by the idea of doing marketing for them, but, 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 but really helping them become a company that makes food the world was, was, was going to love. Uh, so I promised myself I would never think that I was going to work for a CPG company. Every day I went to work, I, I, I thought, I'm working for a food company at which I happen to do marketing. Right. So, 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 so you, join, you join General Mills. There's a lot of, you've got to, you, you've convinced yourself um, this is a company in transformation. Um, and you know, part of that is a business transformation, but obviously part of that is also a cultural transformation. Did, did the two go hand in hand? How did it actually work out? Yeah, yeah, it did. I mean, it, 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 was, it was great. You know, the first thing we did was we rewrote the entire corporate purpose. And we did that with a team of people who were young and progressive. Uh, whose food values really mirrored the food values that the world was embracing more and more. So, 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 so culturally, there was a sort of bottom-up energy and enthusiasm to, uh, to do something different than what a big food company used to do in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And we, uh, we, 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 um, we changed the way that we do marketing. We changed the way we developed ideas. We did uh, the first review of our, our partner agencies in, in almost half a century, in more than half a century. We built an internal agency. And, and we started to get some of these giant brands billion-dollar brands like Cheerios and Nature Valley moving, growing for the first time, for the first time in a decade. Uh, it, was, um, it was terrific uh, un until it wasn't. 
<laughs> and what was it? What, without going into a lot of detail, what 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 changed for you? Because everything seemed to new leadership and a new vision. Yeah, and uh, and a sense that while while some of the world's food values were changing, uh, I, I guess a belief in a strategy that that clung to some of the old world's food values, and it uh, it, it 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 didn't. It didn't represent the ambition uh, of a food company to make great food that had seduced me and excited me in the first place. Right. No, that makes sense. So, so, so you're out of there, and and what what goes through your mind in terms of what you're going to do next? It was it was, it was clear. I I've wanted to write a book, maybe maybe my whole life, but but especially for the last seven or eight years. And, uh, and I knew that if I didn't take advantage of this moment, it might never happen. So, uh, so I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to, uh, to, to know a really amazing agent who took me under his wing. He made me his charity case. I was his pro bono client. Mm. And, uh, and he coached me through the process. And, and interestingly enough, it started off as a, as a marketing book. A book about how brands succeed by inspiring people, by being emotional, by committing to causes. So it was, but, a, uh, it, was a, it was a it was a it was a brand purpose book in a way. Sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe um, a little bit more informed by so much of what we've learned from 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 the world of neuroscience over the last decade. You, you know, and of course, you know, we we've read all books. Yep. Know the way uh, people's brains work, right? We blink, we're nudged. Yep. This world of unconscious, irrational, and yet, as marketers, as people, we still cling to this very, very regressive notion that we can persuade one another with reason and argument. And, so, and, so and, that, I, and that our brands really, really matter to people, and that they spend a lot of their waking hours thinking about brands. Right. Even look at the language that we use, in yeah. especially PPG marketing. We talk about reasons to believe. Yeah. A reason to believe has gotten anybody to buy anything ever. So, 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 so I, I wanted to write a book to help uh, brands, to help marketers work in a way that was really true to the way we knew the human brain functioned. But uh, but very quickly, my agent convinced me that that there was more excitement in writing something not not about marketing, not even really about business, but uh, but but about leadership. How do we uh, be we a CEO or a manager or a parent or a teacher or or, or coach? How how do any of us who have to lead people really move people? So what, what, what take take us through the the was that was that your converse, uh, your agent saying there's something more interesting here and then you going back and working out what that was or was it a conversation between the two of you that got you to the place you're at? Yeah, I, I think it was a conversation between the two of us. I mean, the uh, one of the what did the important experiences in my life that really got me excited about the topic of inspiration was uh, about eight or nine years ago, I was dragged to see U2. And I hated U2 and I hated Bono. I thought he was sort of preachy, pontificating, loudmouth. Uh, but it was my friend's bachelor party and I had to go and I went determined to be, uh, to be angry and stubborn. And yet I found myself halfway through the show completely transfixed, converted. I mean, I wanted to sign up for Amnesty International. I wanted to go to Africa and dig irrigation ditches. And I, I just, I became a fan of Bono, the man and his many causes. And I, I came away from that show going, what the hell happened? How did I go from hating to loving so quickly? And it's it's when I really became interested in studying how our brains look and work and react in those moments of being inspired and stoked and aroused and passionate. And then and, and then and then I, I brought that down down to a conversation about marketing. And I I, I think my agent said, well, 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 that's your mistake there. You, you know, th th this is. Um, this is potentially insight into a, a human condition. Don't make it one about 
the business brain. Yeah, because you suddenly you're suddenly into something that that everyone wants a piece of. You've broadened your audience instantly right. by making it relatable to to absolutely everybody. Because who doesn't want to be inspiring? Well, maybe mm-hmm. there are some people, but you know what I mean. You sort of you sort of worked your way into something that has should have mass appeal, right? I mean, should have can, you know should be hopefully an airport book. I'm going to see it there. Huh, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that, isn't that kind of the, the win that everyone's looking for? It, uh, it is. Though, though I've, I've actually been shocked to, uh, to, 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 to learn um, how few books are actually sold at any brick-and-mortar location. Yeah. It, Amazon World. Yep. Everybody else is along for the ride. So, so you, you've, hon- you've honed in on the topic. You've got it. You've got it. You're, you're, you're excited. Your agent's excited. Yep. Now the hard work begins, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was hard. You know, you read so much and you listen to so much about about writing and the struggle. And, and boy, it was. I, I, I guess, I, I think any of us can write a really good 30-page book. But the tyranny of page 31 is when it becomes absolutely because you don't want to do that thing that so many of these books do where they essentially, essentially it's, it's, it's a great article or essay and they repeat it with different case studies, chapter after chapter. I really wanted to write something that had a sense of narrative to it that was sort of fun and compelling and intriguing and maybe even slightly mysterious. I wanted to write something that people would enjoy reading. And, uh, and that's hard. That's really hard. But, uh, but even on those days of struggle, of, of sort of intellectual constipation, um, I felt so lucky and honored that uh, I had the opportunity to, to sit down and contend with, with thoughts and ideas. And, and, and I think what, what I learned is when, when you get to a dead end with your thinking, and I, I guess this, this, this might be the case whether you're writing a book or giving a speech or just thinking for, for your job or, or, or your mm-hmm. life, or your passion, your, when, when you get to a dead end, there's nothing quite as liberating as conversations with other people. Yeah, I was gonna. That was gonna be my next question. So you you, you started um, with a. I mean, one of the things we, one of the things that makes us endearing to every and brands endearing is flaws, right? And this is the sort of behavioral economics piece. Um, if you demonstrate a flaw, you know your story about hating you too and hating Bono and being converted is you know a great example. So you have that wonderful personal narrative and then you're going out looking to build on that and where do you go and where who 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 likes the who else lights the fire for you that you've kind of created yourself right right i mean it was really interesting i am um, i i wanted to understand the science of inspiration and there is very very little of it out there for, for, for decades, psychologists have dismissed inspiration as sort of a flaky, flighty fancy of, 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 of art and luck. And they've studied persuasion and motivation, but inspiration has sort of gotten short shrift. How do you uh, just, let's, should we just pause for a second and say, because inspiration is one of those words that everyone uses, but nobody might know the exact definition. It'd be great to hear what, how you define it. Sure. My, my, my definition is pretty simple. It is arousing emotions to the point of conviction. That's great. Arousing somebody's feelings until they are determined to act differently. It's not some feel good, watch the blind side, weep a little and go on with, uh, with your life the way it was. It, it, it is fundamentally... It's a trans- someone who has the power to make a person make a transformative shift. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So you're you're going out. You're looking. You're looking at. And and I, I came across this 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 amazing man, Dr. Marco Iacoboni, who is the neuroscience 
scientist that is on the cutting edge of understanding um, our brain and how it works when it is turned on. His, his fascination is actually with empathy, but through his work, I, I, I realized there was a lot to learn about inspiration. You, you see, I guess it was about 15 years ago that these scientists in Parma, Italy, discovered this part of our brain, the, the, the mirror neurons. Yeah, what a great story this is. Right? And, and, and the, the mirror neurons are, well, it, yeah, it's, it's a great story about, do, do, do you know the story? No, I do know it, but I, I'd like you to tell it because I just, I just read it and I it was, okay. yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, so, so these, um, these, these scientists in, 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 in Parma, Italy, and I always think, you know, if, if you've got to work anywhere, <laughs> work in Parma, Italy can't be so bad. The lunches must be phenomenal. Amazing. Yeah. And the cheese, it's all good. Yeah. But were using monkeys in their laboratory to figure out which parts of the brain control the movement of a hand. And it was a very simple thing. They would give a monkey a, a, a peanut, and when the monkey grasped that peanut, they would look at their brain scan to see which part of the brain lit up. And they identified exactly the neuron that lit up when a monkey grasped a peanut. But one day at lunch, a scientist was sitting at a table and he grabbed peanuts with his own hand and was shocked to hear the fMRI machine whirred to life and start beeping. It, it seemed that, that as this guy, as this scientist was grabbing peanuts, the monkey's neurons were lighting up in exactly the same spot where, where it would light up if, if the monkeys themselves were grabbing the peanut. Now, now the implication of this is pretty bizarre. It essentially says that the same neuron in your brain lights up whether you're doing something or whether you are watching somebody else do the same thing. They, they call these mirror neurons. And, and as it turns out, mirror neurons are the neurons that are responsible for, for helping us learn by replicating what we see in the world. A, a little baby sees her mother's mouth move, mirror neurons fire, the baby's mouth move, the baby learns how to speak. But, but what Dr. Yacobani figured out years later is that mirror neurons don't just work to help us learn behavior. Mirror neurons work with feelings as well. They mirror feelings. So when you see somebody sad, you feel sad. When you see somebody passionate and indignant, you feel passionate and indignant. When you see Steph Curry locked in and intense on the basketball court, you sit at the edge of your seat. What's amazing is that mirror neurons are sort of the neurological mechanism, the neurological explanation for inspiration. When I saw Bono worked up about injustice, I, I, I had no choice but to get worked up about injustice because my mirror neurons were doing what mirror neurons do. But, but, but there's some magic here because there could be the most boring person in the world telling you the same thing, but it wouldn't fire the mirror neurons. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So intensity is a real key factor in, in, in firing another person's mirror neurons. Uh, interestingly, D D Dr. Yacobani, who's a huge tennis fan, says that when he watches sports on TV, he turns off the sound so that he can focus more intensely, more intensively on what he's seeing. Because you see, here's, here's the great tragedy of everything that I just explained. While we know people get turned on when passions are expressed in an intense way that fire their mirror neurons, we also know what stops that magic. And it is thinking. It is your prefrontal cortex. The more you think, the more you are in an analytical stance. Are we talking system one and system two here a little bit? Sort of, we are. We are. I, I, I think the difference is what, what, what Dr. Yacobani discovered is that they, they, those systems aren't in balance, they're in opposition. Yep. But the more you are analytical, the less likely you are to feel. So, so, so for me, the, at the heart of my book is what I call the inspiration equation, mm -hmm. passion minus reason. 
passion minus reason equals inspiration. You need to be intense and passionate and emotive and expressive to stoke the mirror neurons of your audience. But you've also got to stop them from thinking. You've got to stop them from wanting to make so much sense of the world. But because at heart, inspiration is partially delusional. Right? You think you can do things that might not be so easy to do. You think you might be able to win the biggest pitch of the year. You think you might be able to run a marathon in less than four hours or three hours or two hours. You think you might be able, in Barack Obama's favorite phrase, to lower the tide of the oceans. The stuff that really gets us inspired, really gets us aroused, always has a touch of delusion to it. Yeah. So as soon as as soon as as soon as you bring rationality into it, you you, can't, you, you lose it. Yeah. Gotcha. And yeah. In, in, a, in a way, going back to the Bono story, and I always I always think that in terms of the conditions to be inspired, you know, obviously you had your own personal <laughs> uh, um, barriers going into the concert, but what a great place to convince people, right? They're there to enjoy a show. I mean, you could argue the other. You could argue account. You could put a counter argument. But people are happy. People are receptive. Um, you know, people aren't really thinking. You know, they're enjoying. That's right. So that, that you know, that's a, that's a, that's that's an interest an interesting part. I, I, music is is you know, there's a reason music is so inspiring, right? Um, I mean, music literally gets us to move differently, <laughs> to, to dance, to sing, to tap our toes, to, um, to do... To break out of ourselves, really. Exactly. Break away my, from ourselves, my, yeah. My book starts with a story that I hadn't known about David Bowie. When, uh, when he died, there were all these amazing tweets and tributes, but one sort of stuck out for me, and it was from the German Foreign Office, and they said, thank you, David Bowie, for helping to bring down the Berlin Wall. I thought, what? What did David Bowie think of doing that? And, and, and as it turns out, he, um, in 1977, went to West Berlin to record a new album. And one of the songs on it was this really funky, experimental, instrumental piece. And as he was mixing it late one night, he, he was in a studio that was just a less than half a mile from the Berlin Wall. And he looked out, and on the wall, he saw some soldiers patrolling with their rifles. But underneath it, he saw a man and a woman uh, getting hot and heavy, kissing, making out. And that image, guns and the love so close together, inspired him, and he quickly quickly wrote the lyrics to that instrumental song, which became Heroes. No, we could be heroes just for one day. And in, in, in 1987, he was in West Berlin to perform it right next to the wall. And, and as it turns out, thousands of East Berliners came to hear that concert. Now, of course, they were on the other side of the wall. They couldn't see David Bowie. David Bowie couldn't see them, but, but he knew they were there. And when he played Heroes, he, he played it for them. He, 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 he said later on that it felt like a, felt like a prayer. And just a few weeks later, Ronald Reagan came and said, Gorbachev, tear down that wall. But, but the German Foreign Office thanked David Bowie for doing it. Because I, 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 I don't know. I, I'm going to believe. I want to believe. And it might be silly and it might be naive that months later, as that wall fell, some of those East Berliners chipping and chiseling and crumbling that wall were the ones who were at that concert with David Bowie. I mean, music really stokes us. It really inspires us. I mean, you probably know that, that Plato in the Republic talks about the awesome power of music to rouse armies, to teach children about sort of order and harmony. But, but Plato says music is so powerful, it needs to be regulated by the government, like, like you would regulate a drug. And, and, and I think he's right. I mean, you just look at the history of, of America. Right, Negro spirituals during the Civil War, all of the music associated with the peace movement, the civil rights movement in the 1960s, even in the 1970s. Yep. Discotheques in New York City where, where, where music was a political protest. So, so, so I, I guess, you know, at, at the heart 
of so much of my thinking is the idea that if we could make our communications more like music, if we could talk like music, expressions of passion that aren't always so darn reasonable, man, we'd be, we'd be able to move people. Yeah, so this is, this, is, this is all sort of by understanding how our minds really work. Um, and how we are roused by emotion ultimately at the end of the day. I mean, that is, um, our minds are sort of designed to seek that out, to find it. But something happens in our conditioning to kind of obscure that, or not obscure it, but hide it. Isn't it a development thing over time? You see children who, as you know, as a dad, you see your kids constantly imaginative and inspired uh, and probably inspiring in a way um, but the somehow that gets closed down as we take on more responsibilities as life becomes more serious as education tells us things like I mean I remember myself you'll never be an artist don't even bother picking up a paintbrush mm-hmm. you know what I mean so there's this sort of this conditioning that that happens that is sort of trying to shrink that inspiration piece down. Uh, is, that, is that something that you found or believe, believe exists? Well, everywhere, right? We see it all around us. And, and you know, motherfucking Aristotle. Uh, he's the guy that said we need to be logical, we need to be rational, and we bought that hook, line, and sinker for a few centuries. And you see it all around us, right? At, at moments of real deliberation, we say, well, let's put our feelings aside. Let's think about this rationally. Let's think clearly about this. Leave your prejudices at the door. Now, now don't get me wrong. There is immense value in being logical, reasonable, and rational in figuring out what your course of action ought to be. But when it comes time to execute, when it comes time to go and mobilize and motivate and change behavior, that stuff loses its value very, very quickly. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think, and I write about this in the book, I think two of the ugliest words in the, in, in, in the language are chill out. Right? When people get worked up and excited about something, and maybe they're happy, maybe they're angry, maybe there are any of the beautiful emotions in between, but, but the world says, chill out. You, you know, I, I told the CEO, General Mills, once that I, I loved sons and daughters, but maybe we should have bring yourself to work day. Uh, because because yeah. we tend not to do that, yeah. right? bring our work selves to work and leave part of ourselves in the car where we were singing songs and expressing opinions and, and living in the, in the, in the, in the full awesome messy humanity of, of ourselves. Is there, is there, is there, a, I was thinking about this uh, just very recently because um, is there a downside to this such as um, inspirational exuberance at the cost of everything. So Uber, Uber wouldn't be where it is today if there hadn't been some inspirational exuberance somewhere along the line. I mean, every startup who wants to be a billion-dollar unicorn has some ridiculous statement about the implied potential value of the market that they're going after. You know, we are going to dominate logistics and transportation and the future of mobility or whatever it is, much more eloquently stated than that. But, but they, they, these unicorns start, you know, with the JFK mission to the moon type belief system. Right. And they have a, they have a leader who must be charismatic and they have a ton of people drinking the Kool-Aid. It's sort of you get into a... Do you get... Can we get dangerously into cults? The cult of personality. Absolutely. You, you know, everything that I said about Obama's ability to inspire, it could be applied to Trump as well, and, and even far worse despots. Absolutely. Um, the fact that there are evil, insidious assholes in the world, though, doesn't change the fact that inspiration has a preposterous power to mobilize people. Uh, I mean, Bain and company did a study a few years back where they looked at 
hundreds of companies around the globe. And what they figured out is that an inspired employee is more than two times more productive than an uninspired one. I mean, just, just think about that. More than two times more productive. That is what I call the inspiration advantage. Yep. Could it be used for evil? Damn right. Don't be evil. Do well, I mean, the inspiration advantage is fascinating because, you know, there's, there's a Gallup data that says something like 65% of employees uh, hate their jobs and are demotivated. That's sad. Yeah. Yeah, which is terrible. Why go into work if you're not enjoying it? Why be in a business if you're not motivated by it, if you can't be inspired? Um, one thing I was in very intrigued by, I just watched an NBC interview with Lance Armstrong, mm. who is who at one point could have been said, there is no athlete in America that is more inspiring than Lance Armstrong. Right. And he obviously lied and cheated his way. Is there a, is there a, um, did you look at anything culturally, America versus the rest of the world in this? Because I think that would be kind of an interesting uh, take because... America seems to have a lot of advantages, and you can point to a lot of Americans who have been truly inspiring, obviously language limitations aside. Um, but there is something about American culture and um, the, Amer the genesis of American culture and American history that lends itself a little bit more perhaps than other cultures to, to this, to, to inspiration, to inspiring leaders, to wanting to be led. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing question, uh, and I probably haven't thought about it as much as I should have, but I do talk a little bit about it in the book where I reference a study that was done in Japan just a few years ago. And, uh, and, and what this professor in Tokyo wanted to figure out is whether or not you could make people more creative. So he got a bunch of undergraduate students and he gave them an assignment to paint or to draw uh, an object. And the object were things like vases or teapots. And, and what they say in the study is that the, the style of, of thinking, of creating in Japan is very, very literal. So people tried to replicate these vases and these teapots with as much verisimilitude as possible, right? This was sort of realism in art. The professor then did something else. He exposed half of the group to great realistic art and half of the group to abstract expressionism. He wanted to see if those students who were exposed to abstract expressionism would, uh, would, would come back to the task differently, maybe with more ambition in their art. And sure enough, they did. Sure enough, just being exposed to abstract expressionist, modern, funky art made those students more willing to take creative risks in what they then produced. Here's where it gets really cool, Ed. He then took all of this art that the students produced and gave it to a committee of great and established and esteemed artists and asked them to, to, to judge it, to rank it. And sure enough, these artists said the best art, whatever the heck that means, the best art was the art done by those students who were exposed to the abstract expressionist work. I, I, I think at least for me, the lesson there, well, there are two lessons. The first is, you can make people more creative when you approach them with creativity. It's as simple as that. And the second is that the human brain is more universal than it is culturally specific. Right. Be it um, a Wild West culture like America or buttoned-up culture like Japan, the, uh, the brain still operates the same way when stimulated with awesome creativity, it responds with awesome creativity. I just, I just, you just reminded me of a, of a story that I think is sort of relates to this in a way, which is kind of kind of interesting. Back back in the day when I first started, there was uh, an anthropologist, but he was made way more than that, called Robert Deutsch. I don't know if he, Doctor Robert. Of course, yeah. And I think Adam Morgan um, introduced me to him. I think because I just started, and I called Adam and said, "Look, I need, I need to actually, I needed to put someone on a plane. We were pitching an airline account. I need to put someone on a plane." He said, "Call." Robert. 
So we ended up calling him and having a chat. And he was just, he's, he's, I mean, he's a book into himself because he was kind of, he was doing a lot of really, really interesting stuff at a political level and, and from a foreign affairs perspective. And I said, well, what's the, what's the most recent project you've done? He said, well, I was hired by the government of Japan to um, follow the emperor of Japan on a national tour of the United States. So I, what I did was I did pre-interviews, I did post-interviews, and, you know, this, you know, four-week-long tour or two-week-long tour or whatever it was. And I, and I said, well, what was the conclusion? The conclusion was the Japanese emperor has a very small wave. <laughs> Which That's is amazing. very, you know, it was, you know, kind of interesting in the comparison, you know, the cultural cultural comparison of, of these two two different countries. Um, so right, right. Had 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 that guy uh, gone to uh, gone to a Jets game for yeah, wave might have changed. That's true. So um, kind of kind of looking to corner into into the finishing straight. Um, Say you're a company and you're, you're you know, you've, um, you sort of buy this idea um, that inspiration is key. You want inspired employees. You want a vision, but you don't have it yet. What, what do you, where do you start and where do you need to go? What are the steps in the process right, to bring right. this into the organization? Well, uh, well, luckily, in my book, I talk about the six skills of inspiration that any person or organization can uh, adapt and employ and practice to do just that. But, uh, but, but the first is, is probably the most important. You touched on it earlier when you were talking about some of those startup unicorns. It is about uh, ambitions and making our ambitions as delusional as possible. Uh, because people aren't inspired by small things. That's when we start sort of measuring and calculating. It's only when an ambition becomes almost incomprehensible that 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 passion has the reason extracted from it, and people sort of get get motivated. But part of that is 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 because we love being underdogs. Nobody wants to be Goliath. We all want to be David slaying something big, because uh, because because that's exciting. Uh, we're evolutionarily programmed to uh, to root for the underdog. Um, it's actually a, a sort of wonderful redemptive feature of being a human being. I think that we've uh, we've got empathy for the vulnerable. So, so I, I think the first thing to do is to take your reasonable sounding ambition and stretch it to the point of. of I mean, one of the examples I used is, it goes back a little ways, but it's sort of Lincoln and the Civil War. A lot has been written about Lincoln starting his career in politics as a guy who was essentially okay with slavery. Even when he was elected president, he didn't want to abolish slavery at all. He wanted to forge a compromise where southern states could continue as they had and northern states could continue as they had. But, but, but remember, the turning point in the Civil War was when Lincoln took that ambition and supersized it. And it wasn't just to emancipate slaves. It wasn't just to abolish slavery. It was to help America fulfill its destiny to be the most moral country on the face of the earth. Right, right. Lincoln's trajectory, his delusionizing his ambition went from let's have a compromise to let's keep the union together at all costs to let's be angels. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, you know, it's hard for me to think of an example that, 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 that's more uh, significant than, than that one in terms of uh, an ambition really changing the, 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 the shape, the course of history based upon its preposterousness. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think it's, inter it's interesting how, you know, we can, we can see these examples and they kind of, whenever we find something, I mean, I'm, whenever, they, they strike us. You know, when you read a new CEO coming on board and saying, um, this is what we're going to do, or when you just hear Elon Musk. I mean, Elon Musk is Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Henry Ford, all right. these all these iconic leaders are iconic leaders because they had ambition. They have or had ambition. Um, 
but they are they're not the norm you know they're not the norm they are they are exceptions i mean i did i one of my interviews if you listen to it with um uh frank rose who's a has written about Apple and written written about technology and has written 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 uh, for Wired and stuff. I mean, said the Valley wanted Jobs to leave the Valley. They did not want Jobs to be there. He was a creative rebel that no one wanted around. Right. Uh, because he didn't conform to the logic. Um, mentality, the rational mentality that that, that surrounded uh, the place at that time. Um, so these people have a, they can have a tough time. I mean, I think you know, I was reading um, this guy Thomas Barter, who's done a lot of work with CMOs. Um, you know, just doing massive surveys and stuff like that. Um, said that really at their heart, CMOs are emotionally driven. Um, and, and they want to be part of the creative process and they want to be creators and their problems come when they are surrounded by logic that doesn't understand uh, the Eros mindset and right. um, you know that it seems that it's one thing to have inspiration and to be inspiring the other thing is to make it stick and to be able to stick around because this sort of seems to be um, uh, shelf life. Mm-hmm. You know how how you know you can you can come out with a grand proclamation, um, but keeping it there and keeping everyone focused and keeping people motivated is as important a skill as having the initial um, big hairy audacious goal or delusional <laughs> proclamation. Right, right. Although it's it's interesting, I I would hate for people to think they need to be Steve Jobs or Abraham Lincoln to inspire, because I actually think that inspiration could be that expression of passion or or that, or that mm-hmm. articulation of a delusional ambition could be um, a lot more contained than that. One one of my favorite examples is a guy a guy called Dr. Michael Joyner, who uh, is at the Mayo Clinic. And in 1991, he published a paper in the Journal of Applied Physiology. You know, th- this is not a Manticoson Proclamation, Gettysburg Address kind right. of stuff. But, but in it, he makes the case that the human body is capable of running a marathon in one hour and 57 minutes. Right, right. He, he studied how our lungs work, how our muscles work, and he said it is possible for a human being to run a marathon in one hour and 57 minutes. That was in 1991. 22, 23 years later, somebody at Nike gets their hands on this study and says, all right, people, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And you might have read the book or seen the documentary about Nike trying to break sure. the, the the two-hour mark for the marathon, and they will. They're close. They're going to get there. We're going to get there. But that started with a journal article in the Journal of Applied Physiology. Right. That, that, that wasn't a, a sort of think-different commercial. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I think the ability to think delusionally, to think preposterously, could come come in all in all in all shades of of personality. Cool. Yeah. One one of the things that I, I I talk about in the book is that for me at least, some of the most inspiring people I see are people that I see at the gym when I occasionally go there. People who might be overweight, who aren't used to exercise, they're not saying a word, but they're on the stairmaster, the treadmill, that and you could just tell that they are giving every fiber of their being to their quest to get in shape, to be healthy. That's inspiration. That's a display of passion without a, without a single word being uttered. No, absolutely. No, that's interesting. So, we, we were about an hour, which is what we said we'd do, which is fantastic. It, time has flown, which is good, right? Yes, uh, it's been fun. It's been fun. It's been really interesting. It felt like I've learned a lot. Um, do you want to give a, give a listeners just to sort of like, when, when is this happening? When, when it will be out? Will you be making any appearances? 
kind of thing, just to tell us a little bit more about the book and the specifics around the publishing date and all that stuff. Yeah, sure, sure. So the uh, the book is officially uh, out into the world on July 9th of this year, though it's available for pre-order right now at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your favorite bookstore. And, uh, and as I said earlier, I, I really wanted to write something that was useful and practical, that that, that spoke to everybody, no matter what their dreams or challenges or job might be, uh, and, 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 and gave them some really practical tips for how they could uh, be more successful by making the people around them uh, more excited, more stoked. I mean, that, that, that feeling of inspiration, we've all felt it, right? You feel like a giant. You're capable of doing anything. You could stride across the land, crushing whatever is in sight. And I've come to really believe we've all got the ability to instill that feeling, not just in ourselves, but in all of the people around us. So, uh, I mean, I, listen, I, I, I would love if this book were a success only because I, I'm fascinated by the topic and I want to keep writing about it. And, uh, and if this is a success, then I get to keep doing that. So thank you, Ed. I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to share some of what's been bopping around my head uh, for the past couple of years. No, it's awesome. It's it's great, and I, I love the the journey that you've been on. And uh, I'm excited to see where this ends up and and where it goes. And um, one of the things you talked about is we talked about at the beginning uh, was this idea that you're looking to go speak to companies about this. Right. Um, maybe that's. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. If, if anybody's got a company, a team, a crew, a gang, a group of people, uh, for the next few months, I would love to come and talk and listen and, uh, and, and discuss all of this. So please, please, please let me know. Get in contact with me. Uh, Michael at talklikemusic.com is the best way to get me. Michael at talklikemusic.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.